0: Well, we have decided to take these next three weeks and explore together what it means to be a Jesus-centered family and to build a Jesus-centered family. And so this weekend, we're going to talk about marriage. Next weekend, we're going to talk about parenting. And then in our final week, we'll talk about Jesus-loving children, Jesus-loving kids together. Now, I realize that this Jesus-centered vision for family life is quite different from the cultural norm. Turn on your TV, flip through the channels, you won't find much inspiration for building a Jesus-centered family, or even a family, for that matter. Pop culture seems to be moving away from much emphasis at all on building healthy, solid families, much less Jesus-centered families. So what we're talking about and advocating in this series is really quite countercultural, for sure. And then today, as we focus on marriage, which is the foundation for the family we're going to sound even more countercultural. just tell somebody at work you know at the office or at the soccer field or at the gym that you are intent on building a marriage that's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will likely look at you like you're from another planet but that's okay because in one sense that's what Christ loving people are aliens and strangers in this world the Bible says We're cut out of a different cloth. We march to the beat of a different drummer. And as a result, we are somewhat out of sync, out of step with our culture. Paul once wrote, we are fools for Christ's sake. And we need to be okay with that, don't we? We need to get to the point where we're okay being looked at that way. Now, in talking about gospel-grounded marriage today, let's even choose a starting point that might also seem a bit strange, even to us Christians, let's not start with us, okay? That's the typical starting point, what we want in a marriage, what our hopes and dreams are, what our picture, our picture of what an ideal marriage looks like. The truth is, in all likelihood, our views of marriage are somewhat tainted, We were all raised in this culture. We live and work and play and we're entertained in a culture that puts man at the center of everything and pushes God out to the periphery, out to the margins. So let's be humble and honest and admit that our own respective views of marriage may have been shaped at least a little bit by this culture that we live in. I think we need to be humble enough to admit that. So that being the case, let's just be a little weird And let's choose a different starting point in our discussion today. Let's start with God. Let's start with God, not us. Let's begin with his vision for marriage, not necessarily what our vision is. When I read the Bible, I see a vision for marriage that is so elevated, that is so lofty, that's so spiritual that it seems almost otherworldly, alien-like. John Piper says that our Creator's vision for our marriages is so different from what we typically see in here that it's almost unintelligible to our ears. But it's not just our generation. It's it's really always been that way. No culture has ever had a high enough view of marriage. Even back in Jesus' day, when one day he laid out God's vision for marriage to his disciples, when they heard it, they were very perplexed. And here's how they responded in Matthew 19.10. Well, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. (laughs) If that's what marriage means to God, if that's the significance of marriage in his eyes, then maybe everyone should just take a pass or opt out. To which Jesus replied, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. So with that in mind, let me pray for us this morning along those same lines. Would you bow in prayer with me? And so, Lord Jesus, I pray this morning, may we be among those to whom it is given to be able to receive your vision for marriage and for our marriages. Teach it to us by your Holy Spirit. I pray in your precious name. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, if you will. Perhaps Paul best summed up God's vision for marriage When he wrote this in his letter to the Ephesians, beginning in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, now he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound. Yes, it is. And I am saying that it, it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is a profound mystery. I want to key in on that little phrase that Paul uses to describe the wonder of God's vision for our marriages. Because God's vision for our marriages is profoundly mysterious in many, many ways. And I want to key in on two of those mysteries of marriage and God's plan, okay? And there's an outline in your worship folder you can follow along. Number one. The mystery of marriage. Marriage is a profoundly mysterious union. A profoundly mysterious union. What did Paul write? The two shall become one flesh. And he's quoting from the book of Genesis chapter 2. The creation account. And we learn a lot about God's vision for marriage. In Genesis. In the creation account. And what we learn most foundationally Is that marriage comes from God God invented marriage. Would you say that with me? God invented marriage the creator Created marriage first in his own mind. He conceived of it and then in the world that he formed God created a man. He saw that it was not good that the man was alone and isolated and Then God solved man's isolation problem by fashioning a beautiful woman from the man's own body, and then she brought her to the man to be for him a perfect complement, a companion, a completer. And so together in God's plan, in God's vision for marriage, the husband and wife are image bearers of God and covenant partners with God. And they were to have dominion over the world, and they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so in God's design, the very first spouses were to be co-regents with God, ruling over his creation, and co-creators with God of human life. And all this was to be lived out in the context of this thing called a one flesh marriage relationship. A uniting of hearts and lives and bodies that God designed to be a very, very special thing. And I think it's interesting that this one flesh union is said to be God's doing, God's work. Listen how Jesus put it in Matthew 19. You know how Jesus' critics and detractors were forever trying to trap him into saying something stupid in public so the people would turn away from him? This is one of those occasions, Matthew 19. Verse 3, it says, The Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read? He's going to quote Genesis 2. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus adds his comment, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Let the weight of those words sink into your soul today. What God has joined together. Ultimately, it's not the groom. It's not the bride. It's not the judge down at the courthouse. It's not the pastor who performs the ceremony. It's not anyone, but God... God himself joins a man and a woman together in marriage and makes them one. This one flesh union is performed, it says, by God. What God has joined together. In each and every marriage, when a man and woman stand before God and make covenant vows to each other, as dozens and dozens of couples have done right up here over the years, and then they consummate those vows through the act of sexual intercourse and become one God himself does something very profound in and through that. He joins the married couple together in ways that they don't even fully understand. That's why Jesus said that when a married couple pulls apart, they're actually in effect attempting to undo the very work of God in joining them together. What God has joined together, let not man separate. This is a profound mystery. Isn't it? The union between a man and a woman is more than a contract. It's more than an agreement. It's so much more than a financial arrangement. It's even way more than a sexual union. It's a threefold covenant with the Creator, a husband and a wife, and God covenanting together. It's a spiritual union, a commingling of two souls such that they become one in God's eyes, joined together, literally glued together. Parents, let's teach this vision of marriage to our children. Not the casual, easy come, easy come, easy go view of marriage that's so popular in our culture. Let's teach God's vision of marriage to our children. That's a high view of marriage. Let's teach it to them before they get married. Let's teach it to them before they even start dating seriously. Let's pass God's view on. Marriage is a profoundly mysterious physical and spiritual union performed by God and based on a covenant promise made with God. Beyond that, marriage is also a profoundly mysterious picture or illustration And in Paul's descriptions of marriage, we see this again and again and again, don't we? This notion that marriage is actually meant to be an analogy of something else. Husbands, love your wives. Not period. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 32 again. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, in God's vision, the primary significance of marriage lies in what it pictures, what it illustrates. And we see that God designed human marriages to picture the loving relationship that he has with his covenant people. And so in the Old Testament, it pictured Yahweh's relation with his covenant people, the children of Israel, his commitment to them, his covenant with them. And in the New Testament era, the church age, it pictures the covenant relationship that Jesus has with his bride, the church. And I ask you this morning, who thinks this way? I mean, who thinks about marriage in these high and lofty terms? You know how the Bible is always saying things like, for from him and through him and to him are all things? How it's always saying things like, all things were created by him and for him and In all things, he should have the supremacy, the preeminence. That all things are ultimately about Jesus. And that's true of our marriage as well. My marriage to my wife is primarily, in God's view, about Jesus Christ. And his covenant relationship with his bride. For any and all who happen to be watching... My marriage, your marriage, my children who live in my home, friends, neighbors, people in my small group, fellow church members, people in the community that I know, angels, demons, Satan. Viewing my marriage should get a better, clearer picture of Jesus' covenant relationship with his people. Again, I ask, who thinks that way? Who thinks that way about marriage? Human marriage illustrates... Divine marriage. Now, let's think about divine marriage for a moment. Think of Jesus Christ pursuing his bride with determination and passion. The Bible says we did not choose him, but he chose us, didn't he? He purchased his bride, the Bible says, with his own blood. That was the dowry payment that Jesus made to obtain for himself a glorious bride, the church. He gave himself for her, and now we are pledged to him alone. And then after paying that price and rising from the grave, he went, up, went away to prepare a place for his bride in his father's house. Just like a Jewish groom would do. And one day, when many least expect it, he will come back for his bride, the church. The church that he purchased with his own blood. And they, he will take his church to be with him, enjoying each other in glorious intimacy forever and ever. Unbroken intimacy. Now, as the bride, we are supposed to be busily preparing ourselves these days to be with him, cleansing ourselves from everything that would dishonor or displease him, seeking purity of heart and mind and body and looking for his return. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But he's not here. He's absent right now. And too often in his seemingly long absence, the affections of the bride are drawn away, aren't they? Some other suitor comes calling and we get all flushed with excitement over his attentions, our hearts that were once inflamed with passion for the one who sought us and chose us and purchased us now are all aflutter flutter and intoxicated with the affections of someone or something else, other lovers, other husbands. God's people throughout the ages have been known for this kind of spiritual fornication. And so what does Jesus do? What does the heavenly bridegroom do when his people's hearts are drawn away from him? Does does he say, heck with you! Go to hell! I'll find myself another bride! Is that what he does? Thankfully, amazingly, he keeps pursuing us. You've been there. I have. Your heart's turned away from Christ. You've become... Inflamed with passion for someone or something else. He's lost his place in your heart. And what does he do? He comes after you, doesn't he? He pursues. He chases. He's the bridegroom. He keeps reaching. He keeps seeking to win our hearts back. To be reconciled. The dream never dies in his heart. His love is fixed. Strong. Relentless. Forgiving. And permanent. That's the love. Of our heavenly bridegroom. And he will come back and get his bride one day. And make her completely clean. And take her to himself. And the marriage feast we will finally enjoy together. Will be unlike any wedding reception you've ever been to in this life. It will be glorious. What a mystery this is. The mystery of marriage. Well this week I thought a lot about my own marriage. I've been married now for 27 years to my bride, Shirley. We were young. We were coming alive to God at the same time. We, we wanted to share our lives together in ministry. and God brought us together. And I thank God for our 27 years. We were married when we were four. That's why. <laughs> there have been lots of highs in our marriage life. And there have been some lows also. I suspect that our marriage is kind of like many marriages. It's had both. And I'll be completely honest with you. Our most difficult times have been in the last few years. We've struggled more, Shirley and I have, than we ever have with not being on the same page in certain areas of our marriage. (sighs) Parenting adult children... Do any of you do this? Do you do it well? Anybody? Oh, man. We've struggled. I've actually had this thought. I've even shared it with with Shirley. I said, honey, I I now understand why marriages come apart. I didn't used to, but I do now. We've had friends who split up, and at the time, it just seemed unthinkable. It seemed ridiculous. It seemed so unnecessary. But through our own struggles and dark times in our marriage, we've come to understand how that can happen. In our struggles, we have sought out some support and some counsel. And when you're struggling, I hope you'll do that too. Be humble enough to do that. Here's the question that's rattled around in my brain, okay? After you've been married for a while and the the freshness and the mystique has worn off, And you wake up one day to realize that you've drifted apart and you've gotten so immersed in your own worlds that you wonder if you'll ever have the ability or even the desire to reenter each other's world again. When you become so disheartened about your marriage that you feel like giving up, what vision for your marriage will be captivating enough to save it? What vision will be strong enough to fuel a desire to re-engage with each other and with God and to salvage what feels like it's crumbling? Four steps to a better marriage? Is that going to be enough? Three principles for rekindling passion in your marriage? What vision will salvage your marriage at the point of feeling so hopeless? And for me and for us, it was nothing less than being recaptivated by God's vision for marriage. His vision. His vision. It's got to be something like that. It's got to be something higher, something larger, something bigger, something more profound, more mysterious than your average run of the mill garden variety vision of just try again and maybe you'll find happiness. It's got to be bigger than that. And God's vision for marriage is bigger. It is more, so much more. Well, marriage is sacred. Marriage is meant to display the covenant faithfulness of Jesus Christ for his people. And may I remind you that Christ will never leave his bride. John Piper says, Staying married is not about staying in love as much as as it is about keeping your covenant. Till death do us part or as long as we both shall live is a sacred covenant promise, the same kind that Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. I know that some of you are past that point. And I want you to know that thankfully there is grace, there is forgiveness. No sin, no sin, no sin is outside the reach of God's grace. and We thank God for that. But there may be some of you right now at that point, at that point where you're just about ready to cash out and leave your spouse. And I pray the Holy Spirit today in this moment will give you a new and a fresh, a vision, God's vision for what your marriage can become in Christ with the Holy Spirit. There is hope. Well, I'm going to ask one of my friends, Gary Langford, who is also a church planter and a marriage counselor, to come on up and join me up here. We're going to talk very practically about how we apply these lofty principles in our day to day lives. So, welcome, Gary, would you? you to make it. On purpose. <laughs> well, um,. You probably know Gary. He has spoken here at New Life before, and as I mentioned, he is a church planner. God's forming a team around Gary and Marilyn, and they are getting set to launch New Life Church Westerville uh, not long from now, so we're very excited about that. And Gary just went through our very rigorous ordination process, and two nights ago was formally ordained by the elders of this church into the gospel ministry. So we're excited about that for him. (laughs)
1: Thank you. We're excited.
0: Listen, you are a marriage counselor, and so couples, usually in distress, come to you for various and sundry reasons, and they sit down with you and they begin to share things about their perception of why their marriage is struggling. Mm -hmm. What are the things, what are the common things you hear a lot when it comes to marital struggles?
1: Well, there are certain topics you hear a lot when you talk to anybody about their marriages and what they struggle with. Uh, They say things like finances or differences of opinion on how they raise their children, uh, their physical relationship. But what I found is uh, that's that's rarely what they really are arguing about. That's rarely the real problem. The reason people come and talk to me is because they hate the way they feel, and they're really tired of feeling that way and they just don't know what else to do. Uh, In my practice, I help people with depression and with anxiety disorders and with anger, but about 75, 80% of my practice is marriage counseling. Now, as you might guess, if you were gonna go to a counselor, you wouldn't come to a marriage counselor to brag about how great your marriage was. That's an expensive way to brag. Uh, Typically, people come when they're in crisis and that makes me really excited, because God is very much interested and involved in crisis. Mm-hmm. In fact, I often tell people there are three kinds of marriages. Marriages that have been through a significant crisis and made it. Marriages that are in crisis right now. And marriages that have a crisis not too far in the future. So that you're in one of those three categories. And by the way, if you're 12 years old or older, I want you to pay very careful attention to the next 15 minutes. Uh, this is not a message just for old people who are married and whose lives are over. Uh, you, you really want to pay attention to this. This will help you a lot. Uh, so what, uh, what I try to do is come alongside people and help them understand the gospel better. And you say, I understand the gospel better. What the, what the heck does that mean? Um, although I do counseling. Uh, I realize that what I'm really doing is I'm applying the gospel in a real way to people's day-to-day lives. Again, whether they're depressed or anxious or angry or in distress in their marriage, what I'm really doing is helping apply the good news of the gospel. And I have very, very good news to share with all those couples and, and with all of you all today.
0: All right, so you're sitting in a counseling session, and a couple is kind of unloading their, their problems, what they perceive to be the issues, and after you've listened well, there are probably some, some understandings that you're wanting to get across right. to them. What would those key understandings be? Right.
1: Um, we're planning a church in Westerville committed to helping people be better lovers. You say, wow, that'll draw a crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I mean by that is, if you take a look at the big picture, what is it that all Christians are called to do? What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, Jesus gives us instructions on that. There's two great commandments Jesus talks about. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And what I've learned is that we, we glorify God and we experience God's love for us as we get better at loving others and at receiving love. And almost every marriage struggles with loving well, and they struggle with receiving love well. And I try to help them understand early on that crisis is a normal part of marriage, conflict is a normal part of marriage, that the challenge really is you need to learn how to love more effectively, and you need to learn how to be loved more effectively. You know, some people are pretty good at loving. They're horrible at being loved. Other people are great at being loved. Love me, love me, love me. But they're not too interested in loving you. It's a kind of a one-way coming my way arrangement. So I try to help them with that. Uh, the first thing that I've learned is that it's uh, it's not enough to tell people you need to have a good marriage. Right? Now, Steve just read some verses and explained some principles of marriage, and, and they are the foundational principles. They are true. What Steve shared, God's primary instruction for marriage. You just heard it. But the unanswered question in your life and in my life, as you know, husbands lay down your wives as Christ did for the church, present her holy and pure without blemish or fault, women submit to your husbands and respect them. The, the unanswered question is how? How do I do I do that? If I'm a man, how do I love a woman who's always unhappy with me? She always disapproves. There's always some kind of a problem. She's yelling at me. She won't leave me alone. I have no peace. How do I love her? And for the wife, it's how do I respect a man that does that, that treats me like that, that doesn't know how to do this? Oh, my gosh. Well, how am I supposed to do that? So what we find is that there are, are three main issues in that. Uh, uh, the first issue is that's a problem in a marriage is I don't know how. Almost none of us know how when we get married. There just isn't any really good class you can take. The best class you can take is if you accidentally find yourself born into a family where mom and dad do it right. That's the best possible class. Most of us did not live in that class. So the things that we do well, we do on purpose. We never do anything good accidentally. Wouldn't that be great if you did it all right accidentally? Well, we have to do it all on purpose. So we need lots of help with how. Most couples struggle a whole bunch with I don't know how. And one of the big I don't know how is most couples struggle with having good conversations. Um, Have you ever had a conversation, ladies, where you're talking and he's nodding, but you know he doesn't hear you? I mean, he hears the words and he says, yeah, I get it, but he so does not get it. And you say, he didn't get it. He's pretty sure he did. But he did And many you ever had the conversation where she's explaining it to you and you're nodding, you're trying not to cause a commotion, but none of her reasons make any sense at all. No, we don't always do that. No, we do do that sometimes. Just, no, I'm not that way. No, it isn't like that. And you gave her 94 really good reasons why she's wrong. And yet it didn't seem to help at all. And you get back again to later and have the same conversation all over again. And after 8 or 10 or 27 times, you say, well, this isn't working. You need help learning how to have good conversations. You need help learning how to hear, how to communicate the way you really feel, what's really going on, and figuring out what to do with that now that you've heard each other and understood each other. So there's a lot of don't know-how that we work on. The other really big problem in marriage is don't want to. Now, don't confuse don't know-how with don't want to. They're totally different problems. Sometimes we do know how, but you know what? We don't want to. We like our way. We like what we want. We think we're right. Is there anybody here who's consistently wrong on purpose? (laughs) No, nobody is. When you have an argument with your spouse, of course you think you're right. Of course you think they think they're right. That's why you're arguing. But sometimes our view is so obviously right to us, when they still persist in their wrongness, we think there must be something bad about their motives. I'm obviously right. And sometimes you know you're correct. Not usually, but sometimes. Sometimes, darn it, they just don't want to. They just don't want to love you. They just don't want to change. And there's not a lot you can do to help them with that. And then the third one is can't. But can't is usually I don't know how or I don't want to in disguise. (laughs) Can't is rarely can't, but sometimes there is can't. And uh, don't want to and can't is where we really need Jesus involved in the marriage. That's where we really need help. And this is where we begin to learn that in marriage, Jesus is not a nice to have. Jesus is a need to have. Because sometimes you know I don't want to, and sometimes I can't. And if God doesn't help me, it, it ain't happening. So those those are some of the big concept, big principle places we start. Now every couple's different. There's no one size fits all. If there was, there'd be one book called The Marriage Book, and everybody would buy it, and everything would be fine. But, but there isn't anything like that. So, you know, we apply the gospel individually.
0: All right, you've mentioned the term gospel, and you and I share a common philosophical underpinning that the gospel ought to be the center of everything, the centerpiece right. of church life, marriage life. life. And so how do you seek to help people apply, Christians even, Christian couples, apply the gospel of Christ to the situations in their marriage.
1: Okay. Well, here's where the good news gets really good. This is really, really, really exciting. Um, again, I do, I do marriage counseling, and I have heard some of the most sad, most horrible stories you can ever imagine. I mean, I have a lot of times in counseling I'm not crying, and sometimes I do cry in my counseling sessions which is just a little bit embarrassing. But on the other hand, the wife knows, well, you you get it, that's good, you're a man, but at least you get it. I can see it. But I want you to know that there's one critical question that you want to ask yourself. And if you answer this question correctly, God will redeem your marriage. Here's where the gospel comes in. Here's the question. The question is, are you willing to be happily married to that man, to that woman. Now, you notice, I didn't ask you, do you know how to? I didn't ask you, do you want to? Because sometimes we're so angry and so hurt and so discouraged and so exhausted, the answers to most of those questions are no, 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 no. I'm only here because I told my mom I'd come before I went to the divorce attorney. Or I promised my pastor that I I were Christian. I promised I wouldn't do anything until I met with a marriage counselor. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are you willing to be happily married to that person? Are you willing for God to intervene in your life? Are you willing to repent? Are you willing to forgive? And I have seen God save so many marriages that humanly were way beyond Forgiveness and reconciliation. And I just see God do that over and over and over again. Just like you know, the, some of the most unlikely people come to Christ. It's like, wow, didn't see that coming. Not that guy. But you know, he was willing. He got to a point where he was willing. And that made all the difference. So now, how does that actually apply in marriage? Uh, the way it applies in marriage is, every one of us has this struggle all the time. And it's the struggle of I. Now, think of the word sin. S-I-N. A really good short definition for sin is I in the middle. And you know, we all live that way almost all the time. And why is that? Well, you know, when I'm hungry, I'm hungry. When I sprain my ankle, I just did, I sprain my ankle. When I'm excited about getting ordained, I'm excited. When something happens, it's I, I, me, 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 and that's the way I live, and that's the way you all live. That's unavoidable, and that's what the Bible calls the sin nature. We are focused on ourselves and what we want and how we feel most of the time. That's reality. You'll notice that one of the two great commandments is not love yourself. Did you notice that? Yeah. But we've raised selfishness and self-love to a virtue in our culture. Oh, you just need to love yourself. That's the most important thing. You've got to have fun with it. You've got to have passion. You've got to love yourself. You can't love anybody else until you love yourself. <clears throat> Wrong. Loving yourself is the primary impediment to you loving other people. It's the opposite of what you need to focus on. So here we have the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus comes to save us from the penalty for sin and to save us from the power of sin. And the power of sin is us thinking and feeling our thoughts and our feelings all the time. And what Christ comes to do is to free us from ourselves. Wouldn't it be great to be freed from yourself? Wouldn't it be great to be freed from your own selfishness, from your own self-accusation, from your own bondage to your emotions and your feelings. Yeah, what a great day that would be. And that's why Jesus makes marriage. And that's why Jesus makes family. His goal is to put us in a situation where we have every possible incentive to learn how to love and learn how to receive love. Every possible incentive to help us repent. Now, do you know what repent means? There's a lot of confusion in my counseling practice. A lot of people think repent means apologize. That does not mean apologize. Apologize actually means to give a reason for. Apologetics. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And yet, what are you sorry for? I'm sorry. I got caught. I'm sorry. You're upset. I'm sorry. You won't let this go. I'm sorry. No, what we need is repentance. Repentance is changing your mind and changing your direction. And that's why you cry out sometimes, I'm sick of you telling me I'm sorry, I want you to change. That's what repentance is. Now, don't think repentance is a work. Repentance is not making yourself better. It's changing your mind and changing your direction. And then once you've changed your mind and your direction, you know what, as you walk, you'll be walking in a different direction. You'll be changing. So we don't make people do better. We call people to repentance so that when they walk, they walk in a better way. They walk in a changed way. And then we have to learn how to extend forgiveness to the people who've wronged us, and that's always your mate. And we learn how to extend forgiveness to ourselves when we screw up and when we do wrong. And brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. The gospel is having an others-centered, grace-based relationship instead of a self-centered, performance-based why aren't you making me happy relationship why won't you give me what i want and that's the struggle of marriage here's dating guys and girls and then they say "Ooh, that's what i want connected and then they get married that's good right but this isn't the goal this is the goal and this takes a long time and a lot of conversations, and a lot of conflict, and a lot of repenting, and a lot of forgiving. But that's God's plan. Jesus is very interested in having us change. He really wants us to be better lovers. He really wants us to know what it's like to be loved by him and by other people. And that, that's the gospel.
0: So what you're saying is that the gospel has the power to keep saving Christians... From themselves and from their sin and selfishness.
1: Yeah, we, we need the gospel every day. It's not for non-Christians. I mean, it's, it's for them too, but...
0: Christians need the gospel. It's God's
1: children. It's God's sons and daughters. We need to keep mm-hmm. inheriting and applying the gospel all the time. And it's a challenge because we right. have feelings.
0: I've got one last question for you. Okay. It's interesting. A guy during the first service left a note on my chair and it said, After all these years, my wife is still hot, but now it comes in flashes. <laughs> I thought, that guy should probably remain anonymous. Um, (laughs) You gave a talk. You know, we we talked this morning. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Be Jesus to your wife, basically. You gave a talk here at our men's conference last fall about husbands being Jesus to their wives. Take just a couple minutes and just flesh that out for us.
1: Yeah, well, the really, really short description is the extension of that is uh, God's love is a nice concept, but we need very much for it to be real. Anybody need real in their life? Anybody tired of talking and wishing and hoping They they need the real? Yeah, well, God really wants us to experience love, and there's an opportunity on the male side and an opportunity on the female side. Now, on the male side, men, every man has a mission, and almost every man needs a woman to help him fulfill his mission. That's why God said it's not good for the man to be alone. So you need a woman to help you fulfill your mission. Now, the first thing is we're presupposing you know what your mission is. And if you haven't figured out what your mission is, you need some help with that. Because it's hard to accomplish a mission where you don't know where you're going. And this also makes it extremely difficult for your wife to follow you. Have you ever been frustrated, ladies, uh, thinking, well, I would follow him if, he could, if I could get him to go somewhere, if he would do something, if he would have a plan, if he would bleed." And I'm willing to follow if I could just get into lead. So the first thing, guys, is you have to figure out what your mission is. Now, part of your mission is being a better lover, learning how to give love, and learning how to receive love. Now, the key thing is not do you love your wife. The key thing is does your wife feel your love for her? Does she experience your love for her? I've met lots and lots and lots of guys who I knew from talking to them, they really loved their wives, except their wives felt very unloved. So the men, they loved their wives, but they were very poor at loving their wives, which is a whole different ability. And the only way you learn that is by talking to her. You need to ask her, hey, what makes you feel loved? What things have I done in the past that have really helped you feel loved? What are some things that have made that real in your experience with me? So you want to do that. And then you have some Ps that you can do. Uh, Just like Christ does the church, you have an obligation to protect your wife from all enemies, foreign enemies and domestic, (laughs) your children, your parents, her parents, her brothers and sisters, your friends, uh, people in your circle of friends. You want to protect her from them. So you want to do that? That's part of being Christ to your wife. Uh, You want to provide for her. Most guys know you're supposed to provide materially, but you're also supposed to provide emotionally as best you can, as a companion, as best you can. The idea is for you and your wife to go through this life together as partners. You know, you're, you have a mission. She's your completer, helper, finisher. You know, you know what Adam means, right? It means dust. So, you know, we're all dirt men. You know what Eve means? Eve means life giver. Life giver meets dirt man. Okay, who got the best of that deal? I did. <laughs> Uh, So you want to protect her, you want to provide for her, you want to partner with her, and you want to have a plan. This comes back to finding your mission. And again, not that you have to decide everything yourself, not that you have to do everything yourself, but a woman wants a man she can follow. If she's going to be called to respect you and to submit to you, well, now you can make that easy or you can make that hard. And you want to make it easy. Be a man who loves his wife. Now she's obligated whether you do the well at that or not. Just like you're obligated to love her whether she responds well or not. But, gosh, let's make it easy on our wives. They're such a wonderful gift. You know, why would we take them for granted? Why would we hurt them because we don't get our way? Why would we be harsh with them? There is no woman in this room that wants to be a bad wife. I've never met one. And you need to know that about your wife. And ladies, you need to help your man love you. Not because you need to be loved, and you do. But if you want your man to be a success and to be the man God made him to be, you need to know there is no successful man who doesn't love his wife well. And every man feels that. No man wants a wife who disapproves of him. No man wants a wife who's disappointed in him. We find that unbearable and demoralizing. So, help him. Help him be successful. Help him be a good lover.
0: Well, we could talk about this for hours, but we better stop right there. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great stuff. Appreciate it. Let's give Gary a hand. Uh, So, the call to pursue God's vision for our marriages. In a few moments, I'm going to have a time where we pray for our married couples, okay? So you can be thinking about that. Right now, I want to recommend a book to you. We handle it in our bookstore. It's called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. Subtitle is, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? It's good stuff. Deep, God's, God's vision for marriage. I also want to recommend to you that you pick up... Um, we actually have a position paper on marriage for our church that our elders have put together. It is saturated in scripture, gospel soaked, and we've printed out hard copies for you and uh, put them on the counter in the lobby. I encourage you to pick one up and read through that because we have a very high view of marriage here and we don't apologize for it. We recognize sin and fallenness and all of that, but we want to hold the marriage bar high because we believe that honors God. And so pick up a, a copy of that marriage statement and, uh, I think it'll help kind of round out your theology and understanding of what marriage is. Well, marriage is under assault externally and internally, and uh, I want us to take a few moments and pray for our married couple. So if you're married today, you're here with your spouse, or maybe your spouse is working or whatever, but you're here and you'd be willing to be prayed for, would you stand up right now? And uh, you can hold your spouse's hand perhaps if you'd like to do that. We have hundreds of married couples in our church, and we have hundreds of awesome single adults in our church, and we praise God for both of you. But because marriage is in the crosshairs of the evil one, and if you're married, you know this, we need prayer. And so right now, I want us to take the next minute or so and pray for the married couples in our church. So if you're next to someone that you know, you might want to reach your hand out towards them or... Put your hand on their arm or their shoulder. Or maybe the couples around you, you don't know them. So just reach your hand out toward them. And just for these next few moments, would you pray for God's grace in their lives, his strength, his courage? The heart of the gospel is reconciliation through repentance. Maybe that's what's needed today. Let's pray for
1: these married folks right now.